and welcome to Thrift Shop Biography. This is the one about Miriam Margulies. Thank you for listening. Hello. Hi. How are you? Great. You all right? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Good. What book have you been reading this week? Um, Miriam Margulies. Do you know anybody else called Margulies? No. It's a strange name, isn't it? Hmm. So tell me how you feel about Miriam Margulies. Well, she's one of those character actors who's in everything. That's basically all I knew until she started doing Graham Norton shows and being absolutely hilarious. And I really think that sort of catapulted her onto the next level. I mean, that's it, really. How about you? Yeah, I've kind of quite bemused that she has this illustrious career in radio, TV and film, but she seems to have hit her peak being a guest on chat shows shows and being outrageous. And everybody loves her for it because an old lady saying outrageous things is doubly funny. Yes. (laughs) She's almost got a career as a stand-up, but but actually a sit-down comedian. (laughs) (laughs) But she is just funny. Yeah, she is. She is. I, I like her a lot. Yeah, she's cool, isn't she? Yeah. Should we just get straight into it? Shall we? Let's do it. Miriam Margulies was born in 1941. Her parents were quite old, right? Yeah, they. her dad was 42 and her mum was 37. And they'd been married for 11 years. But her mum was terrified of childbirth. Because she had a couple of cousins who died in childbirth. Yeah. yeah. So she had good reason. I, I therefore think they were probably trying not to have kids at all. Oh, when she was pregnant with Miriam, she wanted an abortion. Oh, that's true, actually. But they were illegal. Mm. So she had to have her. Mm. And she survived. But then she said she pretty much clung to her for the rest of yeah. her life yeah. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. A very tight-knit little threesome. She says that her mum bound me to her quite deliberately with emotional hoops of steel. Yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but she also does say, I mean, she loves her mum and dad. Oh, yeah. She's an only child. Yes. They absolutely doted on her. Yeah. So when she ends up having therapy at some point, her therapist says she's got an emotional age of four. <laughs> wow. And it's that thing again where she calls them mummy and daddy yeah. for her whole life. So mm. so the family are Jewish, right? They're very Jewish. It's a very strong theme. Her dad was born in 1899 in Glasgow slums. And they were second-generation Jewish immigrants. His dad started a jewellery shop with almost nothing, like trinkets, and built it up to a successful business. I love the story where, in 1917, Miriam's dad was called up to the army and her granddad went to the army officer and said, I would really like you to spare my son's life and take him off the list And I don't expect anything for nothing. And I'll give you my most precious diamond in exchange for my son's life. And he took the bribe. Mm. And that's why Miriam Margulies is alive. Yes. Nobody came back from that, pretty much. Mm. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Lucky to have a diamond. Yeah. And a dad that cared. Miriam said, you know, obviously she grew up in a very Jewish household, but she herself... She doesn't believe in the Jewish faith, yeah. but she observes the tradition. Yeah, she really does. fondly observes them all. Oh, so we shouldn't leave her mum out. No. Her mum's history. Uh, she's from Kirkdale, Liverpool, and her parents were second-hand furniture salespeople. Polish Jews. She says she was really trying to do her genealogy. She's got quite addicted to it. And that whole side of her family, through her mother, were absolutely obliterated in the Nazis' final mm. solution. No trace of them. She said they even bombed Jewish graveyards. 
So they only traces these memory books that right. everyone who survived wrote. So she's really trying to work on that. So she was born in 1941. Oh, actually, before she was born, yeah. sorry. So in 1941, before Miriam was born, her mum was four months pregnant and the parents' house was bombed out. A direct they, hit. They lost everything. Bloody lucky they weren't in. So they ended up, because they lost everything, they ended up going to Oxford. And part of the reasoning was people said that Oxford would never be bombed because Hitler intended to have it as his capital Yeah. Um, when he conquered Britain because he thought it was so beautiful. Yeah, and it is to this day. So they, this is where they set up base and the mm. family lived in Oxford. Yeah, I never knew that, though, about I didn't know that. No, that explains mm-hmm. that quite well. If it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Miriam's dad was hoped to take over the jewellery business, but he didn't want to do it because he wanted to become a doctor which is actually a far greater thing to do. So it was a bit of a social status upgrade for her mum to marry a doctor. Mm. Very much the Jewish hope that all women will marry a doctor. And she said, she admitted to Miriam at one point, she didn't even love him when she married him. She just did it for the social upgrade. The first thing they did was the dad set up a doctor's practice from their basement. So he started to get patients and... They really appealed to the Yiddish community because he was the only person who actually spoke Yiddish and English. So they built up a bit of a clientele and I guess they started to get money that way. Uh And then pretty soon she managed to talk somebody into letting him use a place at the back of the Magdalen College in Oxford. So he had a proper practice. She had the gift of the gap. Mm. That's the Liverpool. Yeah, so they just built it. They just built themselves up. Mum is a bit artistic, but Dad isn't. Like, Mum wrote a song, right, yeah. about victory in the war, and it did it win a competition or something? Yeah, and they played. went to the theatre, and the whole orchestra played the song. So Mum is musical because they've got a baby grand piano in the drawing room, mm. which shows that they do have money. It does, and she's also slightly eccentric, but she liked to do housework in the nude, which wasn't normal. And at what? some That's point... That's not normal. Oh, is that normal in your world? Okay. <laughs> it's too bloody cold for a start. They must have had nice heating already. To yeah. be fair, honestly, they must have made money quick because I never grew up in a house where it was warm enough to be naked except <laughs> a month in the summer. Seriously. Kind of odd. Yeah, it is a bit mad, really. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Oh, Miriam started school at a, a, like a normal school for everyone. But then when the war ended, she actually went to the prep school for Oxford High School. So she's getting a good education yeah. already. They just basically ploughed all of their hopes, dreams and funds into making her someone. Didn't and they? she is an only child. Yeah, exactly. So that's easier to do when you have just one. Yeah, but that's the reason they never even moved anywhere from Oxford because she got into that school and they wanted to keep her there. Mm-hmm. Be, honestly, some of the people she was at school with... It's kind of amazing. Like, who wrote Lord of the Rings? Tolkien. Yeah. His daughter was at school with her. People like that. I mean, mm. like, really prominent people's kids were at school with her. So, And her mum's dream was for her to mix with the right people. And that's what's happening. She's having a nice time at school, isn't she? Yeah. She doesn't know she's gay for a long, long time. And yet she's got a massive crush on her teacher, Miss Chase. And she says her first orgasm happened age eight when she was just walking past this teacher's house. She she is so outspoken. She just I tells it like it is. I find this utterly bizarre. Yeah. That you could just have an orgasm by walking past somebody's house anyway. Yeah. I mean, right. Some people are born more sexually charged than others. She got... A lot of charge. 
She really did, because that's not my eight-year-old experience in <laughs> any way towards anybody at all. But, you know, some people are just more charged up than others. Do you know what? This reminds me of a story she told on the Graham Norton show where she said she was waiting for Laurence Olivier outside the stage door to get his autograph. And when he came out, and I quote verbatim what she says, and you can watch this on YouTube, she says, when he come out, I distinctly remember creaming in my knickers. (laughs) And I thought... Wow. First of all, you get over the shock of her saying that because you're not expecting it. It's like, wow. So that happened in her mind, really. Nothing physical was happening to her, but seeing someone caused her to orgasm. And the same thing is happening here when she's just walking past a teacher's house. House! Not even the teacher. That was the power of the crush she had. I know, she's she's sexually charged. Isn't she? Yes. Gosh, yeah, she says she wasn't even in sight. And she says, I don't think you ever know why you feel such passion for people. It is inexplicable. It has been like that ever since. Amazing. So she's constantly orgasming when she's walking past houses. Well, not poor way. It might be quite pleasant. I don't know. I can't. I can't uh, judge it. I love that she describes the orgasm as deeply pleasant and rather exhausting. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so she doesn't really talk about school at length, does she? Just no. that she had a nice time. And then as she's getting older in school, she is getting into doing plays and mm. Shakespeare. She talks about playing Gertrude in Hamlet at school and a girl called Nina is playing Hamlet. And she just develops a massive crush on her as well. So I think even though she's might not putting a word on it, being gay, being a lesbian, she's totally aware mm. that she's attracted to women. Yeah, she is, isn't she? But yeah. she never, I guess because no one's talking about that or even using the word, she's not really aware of what it is. Because mm-hmm. she really doesn't seem to have a clue. Mm. This is the 1950s. It's just feeling feelings as far as, yeah. I don't know. And I guess she's at a girls' school, isn't she? An all-girls' school. So there's probably, you're not, you probably think it is quite yeah. normal. Yeah, if you're to... highly sexually charged, yeah, yeah, it's just what you're feeling, yeah. But she definitely says she doesn't think she's a lesbian. It's not a word. It's not in the... Yeah. Nobody's talking about it. Her parents won't talk about sex at yeah. all. All she knows is that she shouldn't have it or she'll get pregnant, yes. which is why she develops a long career of giving hand jobs out at will. Blow Willy-nilly. Jobs. Willy-nilly. Yeah, and blowjobs, yeah. Um, do you know what? I forgot about her mum doing the cleaning in the news. Did you? Which actually makes it more understandable that at the age of 17 she's going off and posing naked for yeah, art classes. Yeah, that's right. Stuff. She's very free with her body. Mm. Although she also says that she's disgusted by her own body and hates that she's fat, and yet she's very, very willing to get it out. Well, I suppose in art, if you're talking about an art, the larger body has been adored in art, hasn't it? Definitely. But, I mean, she gets out all over the shop. (laughs) She, You know, she strips naked at the police station before they've even asked her to. (laughs) She runs out of a spa, a private spa place, and blobs about in the snow. (laughs) And then they tell her to put it away because there's a lot of people being shown round at the time. You know, I mean, she literally just doesn't care. But then she says she does. It's quite strange, her relationship with her own body. I mean, she devotes a chapter to it, in fact. You know, it's weird as well, like saying she is highly sexual, but morally, like her mum and dad and the Jewish faith is teaching her, actually, that you can't have sex 
but she finds ways around it because she is so sexually charged and like the huge amount of blowjobs. I find this so weird that she's so open and she seemingly gives blowjobs to a lot of different men. Any, literally anyone who asks, any stranger in the street, a stranger up a tree once. But she <sighs> is attracted to women. Yeah, but she says, and I do get that, she gets a pleasure from giving pleasure. So and her there, pleasure's coming other, from someone else's there pleasure. There are other ways of giving pleasure than putting somebody's dick in your mouth. Yeah, I she, find she doesn't it even bizarre, like them, she says, and yet I, she's... I know. You know. She's a people pleaser. Yeah. But I find it bizarre, I have to say, and how open she is about it. But she also says it's because her parents were completely moralistic that she couldn't even have a relationship outside of a marriage. They obviously deny yeah. her being a lesbian in the future, but... Also, it's just ingrained in her that she can't have sex because she'll get pregnant. But she says that Jewish girls were known for sucking off because the man is satisfied and they don't get pregnant. I didn't know this. I didn't either. Oral skill enhances your popularity. And if I'm honest, I think I enjoyed the power it lent me. But she's a lesbian. She doesn't know she's a lesbian for a start. If that term isn't even spoken of... You don't even understand that it's possible for women to actually have a relationship with a woman. Right. You know, it wouldn't even cross your mind if you've never seen any example of it, never heard it spoken of. So you've got these feelings, but that's man is who you, who you should be with. Yeah, okay. And also, she it's not like it's massively common because she's saying she's well-known. Her prowess in this department is well-known across the school and then it becomes well-known when she's at Oxford it's definitely something she does. So that's what she's just putting in her book. I mean, that's and what also, she does. it's not lost on me that she does have this kind of late resurgence of being the woman on talk shows telling these naughty stories. Yeah. Of course, she's going to put as many as possible into this book yeah. because that's what we want out of her these days. Yes. And I'm glad. I mean, they're funny. They are it's entertaining. They are funny. Yeah. But it's, surprising at the same time. But quite extraordinary. Yeah. And, you know, like at some point she's missed the boat and she's got to get, oh she gets a bloke God. to row her yeah. to follow this boat so she can catch up with her own luggage. And he sort of says, oh, come on, you've got to have sex with me if I'm going to do this. She's like, well, no, but I can do this. <laughs> and he goes, all right. Uh, you know, there's a lot of that going on. I think, bloody hell. As a girl, I think there's a lot of times when a man might have been thinking that in certain situations and I've probably got a sense of it but I've laughed it off and yeah. avoided it and never ever had to do it whereas she actually just willingly just goes, goes straight in it. there yeah yeah. she actually sort of seems to enjoy it so yeah she does yeah anyway she gets into Cambridge University <laughs> where she continues to suck yeah. cocks yeah she does <laughs> how she gets in is massively to do with her yeah. parents they pay for her to have extra tuition in Latin. They've paid for her to have elocution lessons. And then one of her dad's patients is an eminent intellectual. Yeah. And they invite him to dinner so that they can just ask, can you be the sponsor for our daughter? Because you actually have to be someone to yeah. get to be someone, clearly. They do really, really make sure she gets in. She said it's a bit embarrassing, but her parents were visiting her all the time. Yeah. She said they were always there. Well, they invested so much in her. It's they because did. of them that she was there. So she has to put up with her parents yeah. visiting. And they were best <laughs> mates too. They were actually best mates. So at Cambridge, she actually says, that's when my life started. It was at Cambridge where I became who I am. Mm. And at the Freshers' Fair, she went straight to joining the drama societies. And she said, acting became the focus of my Cambridge world. That and my crush on my morals tutor, Leslie Cook, 
She that morals teacher. She mm. said she often went to her rooms and told her she loved her repeatedly. And then years later, she was on tour, and this teacher wrote her a letter and said, "You can stay with me." And she, oh, amazing! So she stayed at her house, had a lovely dinner, and the teacher had said, "You can have my room. I'll take the spare room." And then, when she was just going to bed, knock at the door, and she came in in her underwear and said, "Oh, sorry, I've forgotten my nighty." And she was like, "Oh my God, is this a moment where should I seize this moment? Is this?" And she did nothing and then didn't sleep a wink all night and has constantly wondered, was that what I thought it was? And I, th- yeah, I think it was. It was. Of course it was, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it but was a move. Yeah, it was, but because they were all so shy. And yeah. Nobody could be sure. Nobody, nobody wants to be rejected. No. Nobody wants Come to. Come and get in your underwear. Bloody hell. <laughs> she should have sucked her off. <laughs> See, if it was a man, she would have. Yeah. Well, she, maybe why she did it, because she kind of felt safe with it, because yeah. there's no love, it's just an action. Yeah, and she probably wouldn't be rejected. The power, yeah. yeah. She says she constantly needs attention. She constantly needs reassurance, laughter, you know, mm-hmm. she needs to show off, she needs the reassurance, so that would be what that was, that's doing that all the time. That's yeah. more of that, isn't it? Mm. And she said she knew she wasn't attractive physically to people, anybody really, so that's, yeah, that's a way of... Being attractive to people. Becoming a cock-sucking whore. (laughs) So attractive. So she's getting in with the drama societies. And there are obviously, it's Cambridge. This is where most of the people from that time are coming from. Yeah, Footlights. That was the famous... But she's calling them all out. Yeah, she does. Incidentally, we cover Footlights extensively in the John Cleese podcast... Well, he does just in passing mention Miriam yeah. Margulies was on the... But he does say she's from the Drama Society, but yeah. they used to draft her in when they needed a woman, I yeah. think. But he does not say how unspeakably horrible they were to yeah. her and how they made her feel. Perhaps he didn't even know because he's just an arrogant man. Possibly, yeah. But she says that when she was in shows with them... They absolutely blanked her. They completely shunned her. And she would be backstage. They'd be laugh, laugh, laugh on stage. As soon as they go backstage, they wouldn't even look at her. Mm. They would not speak to her. And it really upset her. She'd go home and cry every night. Yeah. She said girls were just not welcome and they made it very obvious. And this being, she actually names them, John Cleese, Graham Chapman, Bill Oddie, Tim Brooke Taylor. All the really great legends of comedy. She actually says, I'd not met studied cruelty like that before. I was 19 and it was painful. Yeah. She said um, the only person who apologised to her in later years was Tim Brooke Taylor. Mm -hmm. None of the others. I think fair play to name them, shame them. Uh, Yeah. It's pretty shocking behaviour. It's disappointing. It's unfortunately not surprising. I know. Comedy now is hardly a woman's playground. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It is very male-dominated. Even if you want to talk about panel shows, it's only in the last four or five years where more women have been coming yeah, on to It's a boys' club. It is a boys' club. And it started off very much a boys' club. But at the same time, you just don't have to be so bloody horrible Yeah, well, people women. say, can't put them on shows if there aren't enough female comedians. Well, there wouldn't be enough if they're getting treated like this. They can't rise up. Yeah. Because they're not allowed. I love that she actually says, because Miriam was drafted in from the drama department she said the first female member ever of footlights in 1964 was jermaine greer yeah i love that i hope she a gave ball them breaking hell. woman yeah yeah because what's funny is that she never had a comedic career so i yeah. even wonder if she had comedic aspirations or whether she just 
knew it was a boys' club and, and by God, it. she's going to get in there. Maybe. Yeah, I hope so. You know what else? I bet they only let her in as the woman because she wasn't attractive to them because they probably mm. couldn't have handled it if she was also attractive yeah. and funny. I'm saying that not yeah. from my judgment, but she says that men don't find her attractive. No. And she's saying that. Yeah, but she's also saying like when they did go off and become Monty Python, they didn't have funny women in Monty Python. She said they just had the occasional dolly bird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and she said Miriam Margulies obviously isn't that. She says she's neither decorative nor bedworthy and they found me unbearable. Yeah. But she used to get really good reviews. Yes. And it drove them crazy. So yeah. Good for her. Yeah. Anyway, one of the first voiceover jobs. Oh, yeah, she wrote to the BBC drama repertory company and two years later after selling encyclopedias and all sorts of crap mm-hmm. after she'd moved to london she got an audition with the drama department and she did all the accents and all the ages in one audition yeah. and they later told her it was the best audition they'd ever witnessed Amazing. she said when she was young she had a long walk back and forth from school and she used to make up little dramas with all these different characters who all had different accents she'd be mumbling away actually acting out all these dramas all the time she's walking back and forth from school. She is born to do this job. And I do understand from reading this book that she's a really fine crafts person mm-hmm. in her genre, which mm-hmm. is really character acting. She's a very, very good character actor. So, yeah, she got the part. And one of her first jobs was Sexy Sonia <laughs> for Anne Summer's sex shop, which was yeah. like basically porn. Yeah, porn cassettes. It cassettes. Was voice work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she was quite uncomfortable, but it kind of probably liberated her because once you've done that, you can do anything. Yeah, so she is kind of like it's this weird thing of being sexually charged, but also sexually repressed at the same yeah. time because of her upbringing. I mean, I can't imagine what her mum and dad would have thought of her. If they knew she was making sex <laughs> tapes. She didn't tell them. She told them everything. No, she would never have told them that. <laughs> yeah, she is. And it's a nice earner, she says. And then, it, yeah, it's 1966 when she becomes a lesbian. Yeah. Because a woman picks her up on the tube. She's just staring at her. And so she's like, oh, okay, and stares back, and they end up going back to her house, not actually doing anything, but it blows her mind because it makes her realise she's visibly a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Like, it's been noticeable to a stranger. It sort of stirred her up and to think, I've got to do something about this properly and realise this is who I am. And I- then she gets a job at the Phoenix Theatre in Leicester, and immediately, obviously, realises the stage manager is a lesbian and they jump into bed together. And that's her first experience. And she really falls for her and she's quite possessive in that relationship so that when this woman moves on to another she, actress... She doesn't fall for her emotionally, note, because she said it's not. it wasn't emotional, it's just that it was her first person and felt really rejected. So this woman then starts an affair with this other actress, Anne, Pushes Miriam to one side. Just drops her, yeah. Miriam doesn't take that line down, does she? No. So she storms round there, banging the door down. They ignore and her. the hotel room as well. <laughs> she says, if you don't let me in, I'm going to tell everyone. Yeah, so which I guess would have been bad in 1966. Yeah. So they let her in and she beats them up. Yeah, she actually beats them up and then she got sacked. Wow. I know. She constantly refers to having a very fiery temper. Yeah. I mean, she keeps getting arrested for... Telling policemen they got small dicks and things. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so she's sacked for violence. Yeah. I would never expect that from her. 
So she's getting radio jobs at the BBC and she started off getting little parts and then quite quickly people are realising, oh, she's great yeah. on the old voice stuff. And she gets a pretty good career in yeah. radio. I really get it. She does talk a lot about the things she learned, the tricks like turning pages over silently <laughs> and just the pauses and the things like where you emphasise certain words because they're the key words. I mean, it's a total craft within a craft isn't it the, mm-hmm. th- this advertising and all that and she's obviously brilliant at it yeah so they're getting her into do all the jobs she says sometimes she's got three or four or five in a day and she's literally running from one place to the other at some point in the 80s we're not there yet but in the 80s she is a top earning female voiceover artist in the country yeah that's absolutely amazing yeah. isn't it she's voiced more stuff than you would ever know yeah because obviously the key to being a good voiceover actor is actually you don't know who it is and you don't put their face with it. You're just hearing the yeah. voice. Yeah. She said when she goes to ask how the sexy Sadie tapes are selling, then I shh, because they don't want anyone to know it's her. Because oh, imagine yeah. this. <laughs> Blonde, busty woman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They imagine whatever they want to see, but it probably isn't her. <laughs> Do you know what? There's things uh, I love about, like in the 1960s, she's wearing a gay pride badge and yeah. stuff, which I guess not many people would A Jewish would have had gay pride badge. You know, yeah. yeah. And she'd wear it when she went to the BBC. People found it shocking. Yeah. But she, she liked it. Yeah, she really felt proud of being different. Yeah. She felt like she was brave. She was being brave. And she said, it's almost disappointing now that it's not brave to be gay. Yeah. Everyone's gay these days. Yeah. Well, the banks are gay. You just get rainbow flags like everywhere. Yeah, so no. it's not that much of a statement anymore to wear true, a gay badge. True. Yeah. At this point, when she's realised she's gay, she, she's 27 when she meets Heather, who's the love of her life. And they've been together 53 Amazing. years. They don't live together and they mm. never have. I mean, they've obviously spent tons of time together, but... She's the complete opposite of Miriam, isn't she? She's quiet and bookish and I can't imagine that she would come out with the stories that Miriam yeah. comes out with. It really works, Yeah, it? she says she had to ask her if she could have a little chapter in the book because she can't possibly talk about her life without mentioning her. But ideally she wouldn't yeah. have even been spoken about. The saddest thing about it is, is that when she told her mum and dad, they completely rejected the idea, didn't yeah. they? And in fact, they made her swear on the Torah that she wouldn't have a homosexual relationship. Yeah. And then her mum had a stroke three days <sighs> later. Three days. And she says, I will never forgive myself or ever not blame myself for that stroke because I know it's because of what I told her. And it doesn't matter how much you have to be honest. I knew they wouldn't be able to handle it. And I shouldn't have told her. And I want to say to her, you mm. couldn't possibly have known she'd have a stroke. You know, if she didn't have a stroke, you'd have got through it. And they'd have been all right in the end. They'd have met Heather and they'd have loved her. You can't blame yourself. Most people wouldn't have a stroke. Yeah, it was so awful. Yeah, and then three months later, she had another severe stroke and she never spoke again. Half of her was paralysed. Her dad had to look after her to the end, wash her, toilet, everything. Oh, poor her. She can't blame herself. She can't, but she says that she She still regrets telling them. Oh, God, it's like the worst thing you would imagine, isn't it? Well, it's such a shame because she's so out there. You sort of think she's a beacon to make other people, encourage other people, and now she's saying you shouldn't. But I guess you you weigh up your parents and you think if they can handle it or if they can't. But you should never not do it because you worry they might have a stroke Mm because they probably won't, you know? (laughs) She actually says that it's their tragedy, not her tragedy, 
you know, it's unfortunate the way they reacted. Mm. But she can't change herself. No. And she says she's, you know, managed to, even though she regrets it, she doesn't feel bitter about it. Mm. It's just the whole thing is awful. Mm. But do you know what? That's religion. Yes, that is. That is true. Yeah. And society, I mean, because her mum was obsessed with the social standing. Mm-hmm. And if your daughter's gay, firstly, it's extremely embarrassing socially in their world. And secondly, you won't get grandchildren. You won't mm. have all that. Of course, well, yeah. you will now, but not then. That was absolutely not even a possibility. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, she then, a few years later, 1970, she gets cast in the big Jewish epic, Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, as Yente the matchmaker, which she Classic is made part. for. Yeah. yeah. Except she can't sing. But she's so good in the role that they drop her songs because they'd rather have her in the role than the songs. Yeah. Yeah. That is something. Yeah. And she said the woman before who was in it in the West End was a really great singer, but she was way better an actor. So apparently you can't have both. I'm pretty sure you can. But anyway, that's how good she was to drop the songs for her. That was a big tour, right? Yeah, UK tour, number one tour. And I like that she's got a showbiz chapter here and she actually says, people say, how can you be an actor? It frightens me to death. And she says, it frightens me to life because it absolutely terrified her, but it makes her come alive. It's great, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah. And as soon as you step out there, you've completely embodied the character. Even if we'd never seen her in anything, you couldn't read this and not realise that she's really good. (laughs) She never got fired from a job. No, she didn't. But like when she later on, when she's in that play with Julie Waters and she's got an eight page monologue, she absolutely loses it and can't go on stage because oh, she's convinced true. herself that she's going to fuck it up. Julie Waters really talk. I think she tries to make a run for it. She, she, oh, they cancel the first night of the yeah, play. Yeah, she gets in a taxi and they drive around for ages. And they go for a cup of tea and she still can't make her do it. Yeah. But she does it the next night. And, and she's they carry fine. On. Yeah. So, yeah, she is really scared. She has really bad nerves, but she does it. In 1972, she got into the Thropney Opera, which she actually says was one of the best shows of her life, the defining moment. But she's only understudying, isn't she? She went on twice. Barbara Windsor was off one day, and so she had to do like the, no, weekend or something. And then Miriam did so well that when Barbara Windsor came back, she said, that's it. I'm not having any more time. Never getting ill again because you're just too good. Yeah, (laughs) she doesn't. But it's weird, yeah, she's only the understudy, but she had the best time and really forged some amazing friendships. Vanessa Redgrave was in it. Patricia Hodge was a mate for life, and they still have reunions. (laughs) It's just one of those. It was a really happy one. And then she says that her worst professional experience was the White Devil at the Old Vic with Glenda Jackson. But she says it's because Jonathan Price was just such a shit on it. Yeah, but it also sounds like it was a really unpleasant job for everybody because they were really dumped in it and they were expected to improvise. The director didn't direct them. So they're all insecure actors having mm-hmm. their own breakdowns and nobody's getting on because of it. Mm-hmm. Glenda Jackson was just got more and more nasty, she says. Then she wasn't good in it either. So, right. you, you know, yeah. it's, it's all yeah. everybody's insecurities and it's just flaring up. And then Glenda Jackson led a revolt to try and not open on time because they weren't ready. And the men all thought it was the women ganging up against them because they were all ready. But, you know, so they just, it just sounds like it all just went to pot. So he's not necessarily an arsehole. He might have been absolutely terrified and therefore an arsehole then. Yes. (laughs) So here's a surprise. So I knew, like in the 80s, that she was the voice of the Cadbury's Caramel (laughs) Bunny. I did not know that. No. And... Other adverts. What I didn't know 
was it she did the dubbing yeah. for Monkey? Me neither. As in the drama that was martial arts scene where they all filmed. flew around on a cloud. Yeah, and it was so serious. Monkey, you know, it was like yeah. that. Yeah, she did all the female characters, the ones that weren't the lead. Because she'd also done the water margin. Now, I never watched the water margin, but I was really aware. It's just this hit that took everybody by surprise. So she dubbed that and... From doing that, she got the job to dub Monkey. Yeah, you'd never guess. And also, but I, I can't remember if I knew this or not, but she's also the voice of the dog in Babe. Yeah, I had no idea. But I'm more interested that she did all the female monkeys on the PG Tips adverts. <laughs> from 1978 through to about 1985. Legendary adverts. So no wonder she was making so much money. She was on some high profile. Yeah. If we can remember those adverts from the 80s, they were oh, they the really most were. famous adverts. Yeah. yeah, that's a, probably a very British thing. I doubt they made that to America. Right. Cup of yeah. tea. <laughs> no, you're not, right. Not a high profile advert <laughs> anywhere else. <laughs> anyway, she's got a big chapter on money. She likes talking about money and she bought a lot of houses. I mean, her mum was buying houses and renting them out to students and they got some decent money that way. And then she's doing the same thing, basically. She's learned it from her parents, mm-hmm. hasn't she? Yeah. So one of the first things she does is buy a big house in um, Clapham. Absolutely almost sight unseen. She hasn't even had it surveyed. She's in the estate agent's. Goes, no, I'll have it. Or someone else is looking this afternoon. I'm buying it now. She can't afford to have it done up, but she rents it to friends. Which is, it's just a really good idea. Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of years, she tips her friends out because she's saved up enough to have it done up. Yeah. The best thing when you're young is, mind you, she was earning good money as well, wasn't she? Doing, yeah, if she she's was a, earning if good she, money. If she's a top paid female voiceover in the country, she's raking yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what else. She's not even just doing that. There's not a list of jobs she's done, but she's never stopped working. She's on telly. She's on the stage. She's doing voiceovers. She could probably fit in voiceovers whilst in a show. Yeah, of course. You just go to this. If she was doing five in a day, you're just going to a studio for half an hour. Yeah, then you go in the evening and do a show. Yeah. Blimey. So, yeah, she can afford to buy a house. Yeah. And then her and Heather bought uh, an old farmhouse in Tuscany and did that up, restored it. Amazing. And then uh, later on, she bought a house in Kent, a cottage by the sea. Right. A friend of mine is writing a play about Miriam Margulies owning a cottage and this big drugs bust and the helicopter landing on the roof. Right. I forgot all about that he'd written this play. And um, here it is. It really was real. Did you know about this? I Knew about it at the time, forgot about it, and loved reading about oh it in God. the book. It's like, oh, yeah, that really happened. Yeah, it's just surreal. Because it was right on the coast, right? Yeah. Didn't know she was renting out to a massive drugs, drugs baron gang. operation. Yeah. And then there was a helicopter landing on the roof. Or yeah, something. it was dropping off millions of pounds of cocaine, pounds in money worth, on the roof of this house. Yeah. And didn't she have to convince the police she had nothing to yeah. do with it? Wow. And it said it sort of took off on Twitter and they renamed her Miriam Escobar. <laughs> <laughs> it's so surreal. Isn't it? Well, in 1984, she did a Gertrude Stein and a Companion. Mm. It was a play. And it was a two-woman show about you know really famous lesbian couple who really changed things literature they escaped from the nazis they had great lives so it would have been a cracking play she got this woman to be the other part natasha morgan who she calls difficult yes she says at one point because they did really well at the edinburgh fringe took it to various theaters took it on tour america 
Sydney, Melbourne. And she says at one point they were in America and they couldn't get the right herbs. And this woman, Natasha, was going, I can't do it without the real spices. I have to be authentic. <laughs> She's like, we can't get them, though. But these are the ones they would have got if they were in America. She was like, I can't do it without the real thing. It storms off. I mean, that's That's, that's difficult. definitely difficult, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she said she was great acting the part and that's yeah. why they put up with her. But then that's the same play, the yeah. two-hander, that they took to Australia. Right? But they suddenly got all funny with, um, you have to use an Australian actor. So. And, oh, my God, that Australian actor was... Pamela Rabe. Rabe! The best actor to ever have lived of all time. Yes. Were you surprised to see her name I loved this? it. Yeah. Okay, right, to explain, <laughs> both of us discovered Pamela Rabe by watching... Wentworth. Yeah, Wentworth, the, the drama. Yeah, the Australian prison drama, which, if you've not seen it, is one of the best TV dramas of the last 25 years, not least because of this central performance by Pamela Ray, ah, which is just outstanding. It's fantastic. I mean, literally, she walks onto the screen. I think it's... Is it even in the second series? Yeah, she doesn't come into it till season two. Yeah, and she yeah. walks on and, and the build-up to it, and then she speaks, and I was I just, like, dropped everything went, who... The hell is this woman? She's just got this presence yeah. and the power. Yeah, she's amazing. She's absolutely amazing. I actually have painted a picture of her. Oh, my God. Because she's such an amazing... I haven't painted a picture of, like, any other actor, wow. I don't think. Just, yeah, I, yeah. She's, she's my favourite and, and you put me onto Wentworth, and it's your fault, and I went mad. I was like, who is... And I looked her up, and she was pure theatre. Yeah. I think that's pretty much her first TV job, and she's well into her 50s or yeah. something. Yeah. And for her to yeah, crop up is. here... Yeah, like, I loved yes. it. Good friends with Miriam Margulies went to do this women-only festival of the Gertrude Stein play, and it was just oh, a my nice... God. That's, I mean, they did the tour together and got like a house on fire, right. and then they got invited to this Michigan Women's Festival, and woman is spelt with a Y. And she says, "If I ever see woman spelt with a Y, run for the hills." <laughs> Do you know what? I saw a dramatization of this fest where it is women only, but they have portaloos there yeah. and they can only find men to come and empty the portaloos <laughs> yeah. which of course you need every day on a festival and i watched a drama about it and when the men come on site women bang drums and say men on the land men on the land <laughs> men on the land until the men have left it's again so horrible and when i saw it in the drama i thought that can't possibly be true and they then in this book it. miriam says the only time men are allowed is when they come to empty the loos and then a big cry goes up from the women men oh. on the land men on the land oh no i think this is fine i think women should have a space where there are no men oh, and i think if the only thing ooh. men are good enough for is to empty the toilets great let them come oh actually yeah because she didn't reveal at that point when she told us that that the women are all naked oh yeah so i suppose there's a reason they just don't want men there which i well, think is fair enough know, but yeah but then they said they didn't realize till they came out on stage <laughs> that like the whole audience was completely <laughs> naked so yeah miriam must have gone first and sort of set the setting by sitting there she sits there and goes good lord there's 200 women she said very large women and no there's two thousand of them yeah. it's just sea of flesh she's like a tits there's like four thousand tits <laughs> quite a shock and she's sitting there going jesus because pamela doesn't know and i've got this time to, <laughs> to get my head around it she's got to come on and start acting she's like i cannot look in her eyes if i look <laughs> we'll be done they do the whole show without ever looking at each other because they both know they're gonna lose it they do the whole play, they come off and they just collapse on the floor <laughs> in each other's arms, weeping. <laughs> Brilliant. 
Can I tell you another revelation from this book? Yes. Something that never occurred to me. And now I've read this. I can't get it out of my head. Maggie Smith phoned Miriam Margulies after she saw her pay tribute to Kenneth Williams on TV. Because Maggie Smith and Kenneth Williams were really good friends. Great friends. Miriam Margulies, Kenneth Williams, really good friends. But Miriam and Maggie... Paths never really cross that much. At that point, yeah. do later. And then Maggie phoned her up. And then Maggie Smith jokes that her entire career has been an extended impression of Kenneth Williams. Yeah. And now that's in my head. It really has been. <laughs> it has. I knew that. Did you? Yeah, she says that publicly. How funny. I know. <laughs> up until this point, up until I read that, she's just been Maggie Smith. And I've read that. Oh, my God, she's Kenneth Williams. <laughs> yeah. I love Brilliant. It. Anyway. She got many parts in many things. I mean, she literally never stopped working. Yeah. We could list them all, but some of the ones that, that stand out is Blackadder. I have seen. I've seen all of Blackadder. Oh, I've never seen it. I was thinking about watching it, should I? All of Blackadder? Yeah. From start to finish yeah. is absolute genius. Okay. All I right. can't say that strongly enough or any more times than that. Do you know, also talking of Blackadder, she talks about in this book of when Rowan Atkinson has his show on Broadway and everybody's very excited about it. And she goes to the opening night and she says afterwards, there's a big party and everybody is there. And then, of course, an hour later, the reviews come out and she says he was absolutely panned and people emptied Left the party bastards. almost immediately. She says the same of when she goes to Hollywood and yeah. they put on a sitcom and she's the talk. Everyone wants her at the parties. As soon as it's cancelled, no one wants her at the yeah. parties. Bastards, shallow bastards. Yeah. So she goes to America, doesn't she? Yeah. She got an award for something or a film she was in. No, she, Little Dorrit. She got a oh. Los Angeles Critics Award for Little Dorrit. She's in her late 40s at this point. Yeah. And she just thought she didn't realise she was really known over there. Yeah. So she just thought, right, I'm going over there yeah. to accept the award. Up on the back of the award and get the agents whilst you're hot. Yeah. And she literally did quite quickly get an agent and got people interested in her. And they gave her. So she's in with Norman Lear, who is a big American television producer. They didn't have anything for her, but they put her on a retainer of $350,000 yeah. to just sit there and be a available yeah oh my word <laughs> that's really good isn't it isn't that amazing yeah and actually quite astonishing really for a woman in her late 40s who looks like miriam does she's a talented comedian actress she certainly is mm. yeah but then they ended up creating a sitcom for her chuck law did it who's hugely successful right. now. he does big bang theory and two and a half men mm. this was his first sitcom right from the sound of it it wasn't that bad and i think she just she would have said if it was because she says a lot of things she was in were bad but they just cancelled it because something else comes along it's just the way yeah. it goes it's cutthroat isn't it's it it's really cutthroat and then she got dropped by the society and the parties they dropped yeah. her immediately and then two years later she gets loads and loads of film work so it doesn't make any sense well she sense. stays out there doesn't she even though mm. she's not the flavour of the moment anymore she decides to hang on and she kind of says she doesn't quite know why but she did start picking up work again yeah Butcher's Wife with Demi Moore and she's with Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson in Dead Again that's uh, film with Steve Buscemi yeah oh Tim Burton's James and Giant Peaches with Joanna oh, Lovely yeah. and the Evil Aunts. And I've never seen that, but this really makes me want to watch it. <laughs> Sounds really good. Then she gets to work with Martin Scorsese and she gets a BAFTA for Best Supporting Actress. So she, you know, she is really getting some yeah. plum roles Really here. good roles. And then I guess the moment of her real crossover is Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, right? where she plays a nurse, which is a really good part. It's funny because she says everyone fell in love with 
young Leonardo DiCaprio, including Claire Danes, who was only 17 and very innocent, and including Baz Luhrmann. (laughs) So he couldn't turn anywhere without people wanting him, and the only safe person was her. So they went out shopping all the time. They were in Mexico City, and they went shopping every day, and she had one of the happiest times of her life hanging out with him. It's really nice, isn't it? Yeah. And also Pete Postlethwaite, who's as lovely a man as I thought. He really got Leonardo aside and really worked on the text with him. And she Mm -hmm. said he made him a much better Romeo. He's great in that as well. Yeah, I hated reading how Claire Danes was actually in love with Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio. And in his youth, he just didn't know how to deal with it. And actually, she ended up getting quite hurt. Yeah, and he was just pushing her away all the time. She couldn't understand it. Yeah. That's difficult, though, to deal with. Yeah, it is. On both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, cracking film, cracking actors. Anyway, skip to Harry Potter, which, let's face it, an enormous amount of people will just know her from Harry Potter. And she actually says, all the years of work I've ever done, it's a little bit annoying to me that people will only ever know me as Professor Sprout right, of the Herbology Department, head of the Hufflepuff House. Because <laughs> she says, if you come up to me and say, oh, I'm actually in Gryffindor or whatever, she, I don't care. She did 12 days work. Wow. You know, oh, I don't know how much it was on the first film. It might have been a bit more on the first film because they're actually on location for a bit. But anyway, she's obviously trying to throw in a few little stories because she knows that there's going to be a huge amount of people who just want to know. About Harry Potter. Yeah, well, things like she was batting and reacting to a Quidditch match, but it was just in front of a green screen. So, you know, she doesn't really have that much to say about it. And she only got called back for the very last film, part two of the last film. So she says, I actually really don't want to talk about Harry Potter anymore. I think I must be one of the last people on the planet who has no concept of Harry Potter. I've never read a book and I've never seen a film. Well, nor she. <laughs> she actually hasn't. She never even read the book or seen the films. She said she went to a premiere and fell asleep. <laughs> and she says every now and then I catch a bit of it and I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I get though when you're part of a juggernaut yeah. like Harry Potter, how you are just part of that universe and... You know, I think when you take a job like that on... Mind you, she was in the first one, right? So she might not have yeah. known that it would become this mad The second thing. one, and she, she didn't quite know. Yeah. She said she got paid 60 grand plus residuals. Oh, well, she can get over it then. Yeah, but oh my they might dribble in. She'll still be getting a dribbling income from yeah. that. But um, it's not a lot of money to be in the Is it not? biggest 60 grand. You know, no, you residuals. Know oh. I'll tell you something. I bet she had a offer... Which was just a set price and oh, no she residuals. She was on a percentage. She's very, yeah, very she wise. She took a lower fee plus residuals. She's all right. That will her. be her pension. I could probably live on that. I know she has higher expenses. She has lots of different stuff. houses she's yeah. got to travel to. But yeah. Do you know what? I didn't realise that she was in Yentl with no. Barbara Streisand. No, I didn't either. Because that was a long time ago, right? Yeah. So that would have been really before any of us knew who she was. Yeah, it would have. It's like I say, she's just one of those faces yeah. that appears in everything until she sort of got famous, which yeah. is much later in life. She's just in everything. Yeah, a jobbing. She's a jobbing character actor. And she's done a good job. She has. <laughs> she has, actually, yeah. yeah. Great job. Great job, Miriam. Blow job. <laughs> <laughs> 
thank you so much for listening to this episode of thrift shop biography we love making this podcast and we're absolutely thrilled that so many of you are already listening you could really help us out by leaving us a review somewhere wherever you listen to this podcast and if you could share us tell your friends about us or drop some links on social media we have a facebook page called thrift shop biography so make sure you come over there to hear about the episodes first and what else we're up to okay see you next week and if you're new here there are loads more episodes now to go and listen in the back catalog so make sure you go and enjoy them okay thank you very much